It's Tuesday, October 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Freshman Representative Katie Hill is resigning from Congress after facing allegations of inappropriate sexual relationships with staffers. Hill was under investigation by the House Ethics Committee for an improper relationship with a male congressional staffer and then admitted to a relationship with a female campaign staffer. This whole story blew up even more after nude photos of the congresswoman were published online. John Bresnahan, Congressional Bureau Chief at Politico, joins us for more. Next, U.S. Special Operations Forces cornered ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in a tunnel, after which he set off a suicide vest. Commandos on the scene were able to quickly identify him by combining facial recognition technology and fast DNA analysis. Joseph Trevithick, assistant editor at The War Zone, joins us for how special forces are increasingly becoming combat detectives. Finally, researchers are getting close to finding out what is causing the mysterious polio-like illness affecting children called acute flaccid myelitis. There is a growing body of evidence that it could be two viruses which have developed new abilities to infect the nervous system. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for how scientists are narrowing down the cause of AFM. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I made this decision so that my supporters, my family, my staff, and our community will no longer be subjected to the pain inflicted by my abusive husband and the brutality of hateful political operatives. I will not allow my experience to scare off other young women or girls from running for office. Joining us now is John Bresnahan, Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to be talking about freshman Representative Katie Hill. She just resigned from Congress after facing allegations of inappropriate sexual relationships with staffers in her office and on her congressional campaign. There were two people in particular, a male staffer and a female staffer. The other angle with this whole thing is it has this quote-unquote revenge porn angle where her husband had released some photos and they were published on a couple of different news and media outlets. John, help us wrap our heads around this whole story here. There's two basic parts to this. One is that on October 18th, a conservative publication called Red State published a story saying that Hill had inappropriate relationship with a female campaign staffer and along with her husband and she and her husband are divorcing. The three of them had some kind of relationship. And then after Hill was elected to Congress, she had a inappropriate relationship with a male staffer who worked in her congressional office. And that was the husband and they're going through an acrimonious divorce, found that out and confronted her about this. Now, there's two parts to this. One is that the ethics case involving the congressional staffer, it is a violation of House rules for a member of Congress to have a sexual relationship with any staffer. So Hill was under ethics investigation. And then the previous relationship with the campaign staffer had allegedly ended. But again, that might be an issue under California law. Now, you talked about the revenge porn issue in the original initial story, there was an intimate photo of Hill and showed her naked, actually combing someone's hair. And that allegedly came from the husband. Right. So he never admitted that. That's the suspicion. And that seems obvious. They were involved in a three-way couple. A lot of people yeah. threw the term around thruple. So that's yeah. kind of what was going around. And I think they even acknowledged she engaged in that relationship towards the end of yeah. her marriage. And it only lasted yeah. a very short period of time. But still, it's inappropriate to do that. And she acknowledged that as well. 
and she admitted that and she apologized for that relationship with the campaign staffer. She denied having a relationship with the congressional staffer and said she would cooperate with the ethics investigation. But then additional photos emerged in a British tabloid called Daily Mail, and they were very salacious photos. There was one allegedly of her naked smoking a bong, and then there was others of her kissing this campaign staffer who was alleged she was alleged to have the relationship with. So what happened is then Hill could continue to say, well, I'm going to stay in office. But I think by the weekend, it was clear by Saturday, we were hearing talk that she may leave. And by Sunday, we knew that she was going to leave and that, that she was worried about a barrage of additional photos coming out. And right. evidently, the husband, allegedly, he has more photos. She, she's worried about more photos being released. So she started to inform the Democratic leadership. And then we broke the story last night. She was resigning. This all happened fairly quickly. It was all about 10 days that this uh, whole yeah. thing really developed. You were talking about that law that was passed that a member of Congress cannot have a relationship. That's a rule of, that's a rule of the House. Yes, right, yeah. The House rule of the right, right. And that was all so just that passed. Is, that, is, that it covers members themselves. But there is, in terms of her campaign, there is a California law that covers inappropriate workplace relationships. If she's the candidate, she's the boss. So right. can she have a sexual relationship with a staffer that may or may not be have been a violation of California law? But. There is also California law on revenge porn. California and 45 other states have laws against that. So there is a number of issues here, a number of legal issues here. What has been the reaction? I know Nancy Pelosi said with all of this going on, just her time there would be untenable. So she had to go and she agreed with it. What other reaction have we been seeing? Pelosi was a pretty harsh statement. I mean, Hill was a favorite of Pelosi. Pelosi had put her in leadership as the freshman representative leadership. You know, she's a fellow Californian. This is a 32-year-old woman, very dynamic, very well-spoken, very good with the press, frankly. She got a lot of good coverage. Definitely someone who represented a new generation. This is someone who identified as bisexual, even though she was married. So this was someone who was definitely out of the traditional mold of lawmakers, a young, vibrant woman lawmaker who the LGBTQ community saw her as a paragon of. This is, you know, this is a new face of America here. So Pelosi was tight with her. And then I think Pelosi, it's clear from her statement, was pretty harsh on what the allegations against her. I mean, Pelosi pushed pretty hard on the sexual harassment issues against members in both parties, male lawmakers, when that broke out in the last couple of years. So I think Pelosi took a pretty hard line. I think initially there were a number of her colleagues, especially in the freshman class, were defending Hill, seeing her as a victim. And she was, in a sense, this revenge porn issue is very, very, very troubling. And as a reporter, it's troubling to me that someone would publish these photos. I think a story about her relationships is perfectly appropriate. Did a congresswoman engage in improper sexual relationship? Absolutely appropriate. Then you go publishing intimate photos of a member. I don't know if that's appropriate at all. I'm not sure I would have done it. But again, again, this is not the first time this has happened in members of Congress. We've seen this before. Anthony Weiner, Joe Barton. This has happened before. This is the first time that we've seen this as a estranged spouse publishing something like this. It's a very, very troubling situation. John Bresnahan, Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. They have his DNA, more of it than they want even. And they brought it with them with lab technicians. And they assumed that this was Baghdadi. They 
thought visually it was him. And they did a site, an on-site test. Joining us now is Joseph Trevithick, assistant editor at The War Zone. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Thank you for having me. So President Trump on Sunday announced the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He was the leader of ISIS. There's a lot of stuff that happened during that press conference, but one of the interesting parts that came up was he said that special forces on the scene there who raided the compound and were there when al-Baghdadi blew himself up with a suicide vest. He said that they were able to confirm his identity there on the spot and very quickly, and they used a facial recognition technology and a super fast DNA analysis. Before this, it would take weeks to really confirm through DNA analysis if a person was who they thought they were. So Joseph, tell us a little bit about this. What did they use? What is this new technology that they're using to make these identifications? Well, we don't know exactly what technology they did use, but we do know that there are a number of what are effectively portable DNA analysis machines now available that are 100 pounds or less and can fit well within the size of a transport helicopter like the ones that they said they used in this raid in Syria. We do know that this technology is available, which allows special operations forces on the ground to take a DNA sample from a target. They don't need to be dead. In this case, we do know that al-Baghdadi reportedly detonated a suicide vest and killed himself at the time, but they were able to then take a DNA sample from him and run it through one of these machines that they had brought with them, likely specifically for this purpose, to ensure that they could rapidly identify him on the scene. We also are now hearing reports that an informant within al-Baghdadi's inner circle had been able to pass along DNA-coded evidence. I'm hearing underwear and other blood samples taken from within the compound weeks beforehand to allow for there to be a match, because that's the other thing. Being able to test Baghdadi's DNA on the scene is impressive for sure, but you also need then something to check it against. And so this is indicative of a larger sort of what we call an intelligence-driven operation. They also used some facial recognition technology also. Apparently, al-Baghdadi's head was still intact through that explosion. The biometric scanning equipment is also dramatically improved. And in this case, we're talking about machines that you can carry in your hands and can do basically facial recognition scans or retinal scans. And that kind of equipment is regularly used even when detaining suspected terrorists all over the world to put that into a larger database so that, again, you have that information to check against. And so this kind of biometric data is routinely collected in order to make sure you have this immense database of information so that if you ever even stumble upon someone who may be in disguise or may have changed their appearance significantly over the years, you have a way of rapidly identifying them once you've captured them in the course of some other operation, potentially in a completely different location. I mean, we know that al-Baghdadi had fled over the years. He had moved from Iraq and then into eastern Syria and then further west into Syria to where they eventually tracked him down. There seems to be six main types of evidence that they're looking to gather at all times. I think it's called identity intelligence. Tell us a little bit about that. Identity intelligence is a core part now of special operations missions. The idea is that you're supposed to be conducting identity intelligence as part of any operation that you conduct. And what this means is you are collecting evidence from the scene wherever you might go. And this is biometric data, it's fingerprints, it's DNA evidence, it's facial recognition, it's trace materials like you might think of watching an episode of CSI. You know, it's a lot less glamorous than CSI makes it out to be. But any kind of material that may create additional linkages between suspects or known terrorists and their colleagues and associates elsewhere – 
and then also very importantly collecting what's broadly referred to still as document sort of intelligence and exploiting documents but these days right it's seizing every hard drive every computer every cell phone everything like that that you can find at a site and then having intelligence analysts get into that information and again you're looking for lists of names you're looking for lists of locations it's police work it's basically the same kind of investigative tactics that have been used in domestic police work for years it's about creating these linkages and this is now a very essential part of how special operators work every day because that's basically the same thing you're doing. You're looking to identify the full network of terrorists, and then you're looking to either kill or capture them. And so being able to gather up all of this information during these operations, and I know that they have also said that after Baghdadi died, then they proceeded to basically ransack his compound for anything that might be useful. And that makes perfect sense. In a situation like that, when you're in a raid and you have to get out of there pretty quickly, how much time do they devote to this when they're in the thick of a war zone or something like that? We heard that they spent multiple hours on the ground, and that seems generous. It may have been because of the relatively remote location and the speed with which the initial operation was conducted. And that gave them a a fair amount of time, reportedly, to gather all this stuff up. But we do know that in the past, I mean, it can be very quick and, you know, it's never perfect. But you see pictures of individuals during training exercises doing this kind of training to do this and do it under very time-sensitive conditions. And they're stuffing stuff into trash bags. They're just stuffing stuff into trash bags. And maybe you have a certain amount of dedicated evidence bags to make it less likely that you'll contaminate information. But in terms of documents and computers and other just physical items from the site, you are just scraping all of that up and putting that into a bag and putting it onto the helicopter and going. Joseph Trevithick, assistant editor at The War Zone. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The key is finding the mechanism that allows these two viruses to sort of enter and infect the spinal cord and like the central nervous system because these two viruses are fairly common. I mean, they've been around for hundreds of years. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Yeah, thanks for having me. So an interesting story. Researchers may finally be closer to finding out what is causing this mysterious polio-like illness in kids. It was called acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM. It's been called the new polio. People were really concerned with it. There hasn't been too many cases overall, but the cases have been increasing every year, and people were getting concerned because they couldn't find out what the cause of it was. So Claire, walk us through some of this. What does new research show? Like you said, it's still incredibly rare. It's an incredibly rare disease, but researchers have seen over the years that it has kind of been increasing at a strange rate where it increases one year, drops back down, but then increases back up the next year. So sort of in even numbered years, it's been steadily increasing. And this is sort of dated back to about 2014 when doctors in Colorado and California started to notice these first symptoms of this polio-like illness. And the symptoms were limb weakness and spinal cord abnormalities, and these were all really interesting children. And so public health researchers then dubbed this acute flaccid myelitis. And from the beginning, they've sort of believed that it was really a virus to be at the root cause of the disease. But only in the past couple of years have they been able to sort of narrow down on what that specific virus is and how it works and sort of how it 
targets the central nervous system and causes these paralysis-like symptoms. So they have been able to narrow down this virus over the years, and they've found two that they think is sort of at the root cause. They're called enteroviruses, and one is the EVB68, and the other is the EVA71. But what's sort of held them back up until now from saying definitively that these are the viruses that are causing this syndrome is that they weren't really able to find them within patients who have AFM. They weren't able to like find it in the spinal column. So this new study then actually took samples from people who have it in their spinal columns, have found it in the majority of cases. And so now they can more definitively say, yes, these two viruses that are likely causing this, these symptoms. And the way they went around this, as you were kind of saying, that they were looking for the antibodies instead in the spinal fluid samplings that they took. Mm -hmm. So they took samples from 42 children that had AFM and then 58 other children who had other neurologic diseases. And they used this new kind of sequencing technology that would help identify what those antibodies were. Correct, because antibodies are essentially proteins that the body produces in response to a specific pathogen. So if they could identify the specific antibodies for these enteroviruses and they find them, then it's likely that the virus itself had infected these kids and infected specifically their spinal cords. You mentioned that the Centers for Disease Control began counting these cases in 2014. There have been Mm -hmm. some 590 cases that have been confirmed 22 this year, but this is the off year. And that is also Mm -hmm. why time is kind of of the essence. Like you mentioned, it does tend to increase in even numbered years. Next year is 2020. And they're worried there might be a spike. So they're hoping they can identify if it is one of these viruses or both of these viruses, and then they can start creating a vaccine for it. Exactly. And I think once they're able to definitively say, and I think based on the study and perhaps maybe a little bit more, they'll be able to say for sure. But once they are able to say that, the key is finding the mechanism that allows these two viruses to sort of enter and infect the spinal cord and like the central nervous system, because these two viruses are fairly common. I mean, they've been around for hundreds of years and normally in many people, adults and children, they really only cause mild cold-like symptoms. But for some reason, over the past couple of years since 2014, in some kids, they've caused muscle weakness and spinal cord abnormalities. And so the question is, how have these viruses sort of morphed and changed? And what's that mechanism that now allows them to get into the spinal cord? And once they've figured that out, then like treatments can begin that are more centered on preventing this from happening. And doctors still say there's really no cause for wide-scale alarm. The the cases are still kind of low, but I remember the news coverage of it and it was like, oh, you know, if it seems like your kid has the flu, they might have AFM. And it was kind of a little hysteria for a moment. And the doctors are still Mm -hmm. saying if your kid has flu-like symptoms, a fever, upper respiratory infection, you don't have to necessarily worry about it just yet. If you see signs of physical weakness, unusual physical weakness or loss of body control, that's when it's time to really be worried. I think kids get so many colds and viruses that it would just create paranoia to think that every time they have this, that it could cause that. But once they have any symptoms of that muscle weakness or anything like that, it's not like a question of, oh, maybe we should wait at that point, then you should definitely take your kids to a doctor. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is great. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.